Hey there, Romantics. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support. If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of Womance. Thank you so much for listening. (sighs) I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About dinner clubs. About chasing your dreams. About making sweet music together. About second chances. About a whole bunch of tropes that you would have never thought I would pick. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Uh, About the Harlem Renaissance. About artistic patronage. About bad people that your parents want you to end up with. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And And ourselves. This week, we are discussing Love's Serenade by Cheryl Lister. I picked this book. You sure did. I read this great article about black historicals, and this book is a part of a larger project that was really interesting to me. And so I actually bought a couple from eras that I was particularly interested in. We'll get into that later. And definitely wanted to read one for the show. And yeah, selected this one actually because I thought, Isabeau, it would be the one that would be of most interest to you because I purchased it solely based on the decade that it's set in, which is 1920s and the Harlem Renaissance. But we've got a second chance element to this story. Do you want me to read the back of the book? I would love that. And now comes the quiet part where I Google it. (laughs) I know. I'm like, why don't they just put it on there? It's like part of the paratext. Yeah. You know someone who works at Kindle. I think you should start the campaign at home. Technically, she doesn't work at Kindle. That's not the division she's in, but... I'm sure she knows someone. (laughs) It's not like it's, you know, a billion people work for that company or whatever. Just be like, put the about the book in the book. Right? That's all I want. My sister-in-law runs a niche podcast, and (laughs) this would make her job of recording a little bit easier. And I think everyone else's. Dear Mr. Bezos, how are you? You're an asshole. I am fine. I have a great idea for your website. Enclosed is your own big toe. (laughs) No, you know what I would really enclose if it was a threatening letter? I get that weird ass like 10,000 year clock that he put in the desert as like this feat of engineering. I just like I'd steal it. A single gear. Exactly. Just a single gear from his magic watch. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, the thing that you love out in the desert, it's still there, but it's missing a critical piece. You will need to divest yourself of all of your wealth in order to get this one great idea I have and the gear to your mega watch. Love forever, Isabeau's (laughs) sister-in-law. Yours truly. P.S. In coordination. Can't wait for this year's holiday party. (laughs) My invites have been lost in the mail for several years. Also love what you're doing with the Washington Post. Please book Black Eyed Peas. Okay, back of the book. Back of the book. Escaping an arranged marriage, Lee Jones flees her southern hometown for Harlem's vibrant jazz scene to pursue her dream of becoming a singer. I feel like my voice somehow became even more Caucasian than it already is. You put a very weird emphasis on that G. I got lost and then I just like decided to go full nasal in the recovery. It's fine. She finds more than she expected, namely Miles Cooper. The smooth-talking musician walked out on her three years ago, taking her music and her heart with him. Lee has no intentions of falling for Miles or his charms again until he tempts her with the one thing she can't resist, a recording contract. But when her past comes calling, she realizes Miles is the one person who can save her from a man who won't take no for an answer. Miles isn't one for putting down roots or staying in one place for longer than a season. 
Yet memories of Lee's sultry voice, beauty, and sass make him long for the life and love he forfeited. Having walked away once but never again, Miles sets out to prove he's a changed man willing to go to any lengths to protect his woman. He's determined to show Lee, one passionate note at a time, that the music they make together will last a lifetime. That's a really great closer. He's determined to show Lee, one passionate note at a time, that the music they make together will last a lifetime. A very good closing line. All right, what do we think about this back of the book? What do we want to elaborate on? Arranged marriage. So she comes from a very religious family. Saying Southern Town felt appropriate. Magnolia, Arkansas. But she's uh, from a very religious conservative background, and her parents want her to marry this preacher named Percy. I don't know how much of an officially arranged marriage it is, but it's certainly an encouraged marriage. Mm -hmm. But she has, in her youth while this is happening, she has met our hero, Miles, one of the great male names, I think. Coupled with a great male first and last name, Cooper. Double first name. Double first name, double last name. I'm into it. People hate Cooper. There are people who truly hate that name, which I find so interesting. I wonder if people hate Miles. I've never met someone who hated the name Miles. I have never met anybody who's hated the name Miles. I know people who like have a feeling about Cooper, but I will never hate the name Cooper because when I was 15, I was deeply in love with a person named Cooper who didn't know I existed. Was he on a Nickelodeon show? No, he was the high school. He was a real person. Yeah, he played the lead in all the musicals and he was just effervescent. I was so in love with him. As you can only be as a 15-year-old girl with a person that you've never shared two words with. Whenever I hear the name Cooper, I envision this like chiseled Canadian-looking human from the North. (laughs) Canadian-looking. You know, he had a very sort of like Mountie air about him. (laughs) (laughs) As many folks do in the North Woods of Wisconsin. A Mountie air about him. You know, just like an aw shucks sort of like boy scouty type with a very defined chin for a high school boy. Anyway, so I think of Cooper and I think of that person or Anderson Cooper. Can I ask the obvious question? Sure. Is he gay? Do you know? Yes. Yes. Like, yeah, 100%. He graduated and he left town on the first day that he could. And he lived a very much outer life in Madison, Wisconsin when he got to college. And via Facebook, he seemed very happy years later. In case anyone was wondering what it's like to be a gay person in the Midwest, Madison is an oasis. Hey, this three and a half <laughs> hours away from Shawano, Wisconsin. And it was like a fucking trip, okay? Like, it was a lot. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure Madison, I don't know, someone's going to say something. But good for Madison. I have to say, absolutely not at all surprised that you were in love with the gay musical lead who had the air of a Mountie about him. That tracks. Yeah, no, that's like 100%. That's like a thousand percent like tracks for like 15 year old me and like me now. Have you seen that Saturday Night Live sketch where the three women who the three Isabos end up finding the wardrobe from the line, the witch in the wardrobe and discover that Mr. Thomas is gay? (laughs) No, I haven't seen and they all that. had like they all go there to try and have sex with him and discover he's oh Mr. Thomas. Did you write any Mr. Thomas fan fiction? No, I didn't. Even though I absolutely love James McAvoy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, Cooper. Cooper. Oh, yeah. So it's not really (laughs) an arranged marriage, but I understand where the back of the book is coming from and how that can be described. What I thought was really interesting is that our heroine was already physically intimate with Miles during this era. So she clearly had no intention of sticking around and seeing that out. And she doesn't. But her and Miles are going to sneak off go to New York City together and they spend the night together. And then the next morning she wakes up and her three pieces of music that she's written are gone. Did he take a little bit of cash? She checked, but I also like didn't understand the prologue because he left her a note and some bills. Yeah. So then I was like, did he take the money or did he leave her money? And then if he left her money, like... Yeah, exactly. Did he leave her some bills as in like... 
out of all of the bills you brought, I left you three? Or is it like I left her some bills and that I added to her collection of cash? I assume that he like left her extra money. That's how I read it. But I also, when I read it, I'm like, oh, he left her money. She's going to assume that that means something really hurtful. Yeah. And then she didn't assume that. And I was like, I guess I'm an asshole. I'm the asshole. That should be the subheading for this podcast. I guess I'm the (laughs) asshole. And I mean, it's a second chance romance, though. So like my initial feeling is like he took her money because that's the thing for me about second chance romances. Like they all might as well have like shot their horse and taken all their cash because I am pretty unforgiving. Anyways. No, I agree. And like the prologue set me up to believe that this was. So if you've read Their Eyes Were Watching God I sort of assumed that this was a scene sort of like tea cake where he takes advantage of the main character and like comes back around again and she forgives him. And so like I was sort of set up for that already. So I didn't understand how to read. He left her some bills and I was like, I guess this is him leaving money, but I almost would have preferred that it was worse. But like that says more about me and my melodrama desires than it does about this text. You know, I love Zora Neale Hurston. And one of my favorite topics is Zora Neale Hurston, anthropologist and fiction writer. She's a very big deal anthropologist. Mm -hmm. We had a conversation about your book club once, I recall. We did. Not that they listen to this, but... Okay, so... What I like about Lee is that she goes to New York alone. She connects with someone there named Liz, who becomes her friend. Liz owns a supper club with music, so she gives her a job. They are very close, like sisters. And Lee makes a little life for herself for the next three years. And then Miles reappears. Yes. And that's where the book really begins. And that's where the book really begins. This book, the reason I chose it, the main number one reason is because we rarely get historicals that are post-World War I even. And this is a part of a collection of books that are 11 books from 1900 through 2010, each written by a different author, each tackling a different decade, totally different characters. Maybe some of them collaborated and created like a family lineage through line. And maybe there are some references. This is the only book in the series that I've read. But what I thought was really interesting about this series, besides the fact that it is it's a lot of post-World War One, I, I mean, you, there's a 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, which involves Tupac Shakur, an undercover cop and a music journalist falling in love. The 1980s is a second chance romance about a guy who gets out of prison after being arrested during the three strikes crack is whack Reagan era of genocide. And the 1970s has to do with a local election. I mean, they're all very political and they're all, uh, I should say, they're all black romances with black central characters, American central characters in what are considered some really racially tumultuous decades, which has pretty much been the entirety of human history since colonialism. But I think what's interesting is that it's not like, and also, like the political movements of the era, the black artistic movements of the era are central to all of these stories. Other thing that I think is really interesting. So there's just like a whole laundry list of reasons I think this is interesting. The other reason I think this is interesting is that all of these authors came together kind of as a collective rather than like a formalized, organized, you know, one publisher type of thing. Some of these authors are mostly self-published. Some of them have trade paperbacks male authors. Two of the books are written by men. And I really liked this idea because I think it's a way of authors probably challenging themselves, but also challenging the set standard practices of historical romance, which would be, you know, pre-World War One white-centric, some kind of Biberton, like, post-racial imagined utopia is another thing white writers like to do, a complete denial of the fact that race existed, as some writers like to do. Sure, I'd like to, like, beep-beep you right there, because I do think that, like, Black historicals have been around and doing a lot of work, and you're right to say that, like, there's very little post-World War One, but, like, Beverly Jenkins, Alyssa Cole did a lot in the post-antebellum period. 
their westerns, like black romance hitting the mainstream has been a slow coming, but it's it's been there. I do want to point out, though, that you named two authors and that they are pretty much <laughs> the only two black romance authors and who get brought up in black historicals, which was kind of the framework of this article where I found uh, this collection, which was here are other black authors who write black historicals. And I think that really points to the fact that we have this understanding of black. I mean, like, of course, like here's something really obvious to point out. Black history is considered this niche movement in America as opposed to just history, right? And because it's a niche movement, I think romance in general pats itself on the back for being like, we have Beverly Jenkins and we have Alyssa Cole on our shelves. But that's not really the same thing as being inclusive, right? Because think about all of the white historical authors you have on your shelf. There's this thing where everyone's really excited to tell you about a niche author, right? Someone that not a lot of people pick up. For example, Anna Geary. Like everyone is so excited to talk to you about Anna Geary, right? But if you bring up something like Black Historicals, people are pressed to think of a name outside of Beverly Jenkins and Alyssa Cole. And that's why I really appreciated this article because I was in the same boat. And I think most people are because publishing also pats itself on the back and says we've given big contracts to Alyssa Cole and Beverly Jenkins. And so we don't see these names um, in Publishers Weekly and we don't see these names getting, you know, single release, right? Most of these authors who do have publishing contracts from this collection are working in trade paperbacks, which is um, certainly not anonymity, but it's also not the same thing. (laughs) It's not as mainstream as the kinds of contracts that Alyssa Cole has gotten. Although, like, again, the book that we read in this collection came out in 2018. And I think, like, one of the things that's worth pointing to, like, Vanessa Riley has been writing in virtual obscurity until recently. And she just came out with A Duke, A Lady, and a Baby, and its sequel is coming out this February, next February. I don't know. But, like, I think we hit, like, a zeitgeist tipping point. And, like, now we've had authors who've been toiling for years And suddenly there is, I don't know if I want to call it a hunger necessarily, but certainly an animation to like get those stories out. It was nice to read the series. Like the next one is written by this author's sister. And it's been nice to see that sort of movement or coming awareness of how people's bookshelves are not diverse so much as like tokenized. So yeah, I think like this book was well met. And I think like we're in a, I don't know if I want to call it a sea change, but there is a change happening. I don't know how big it is yet. Or permanent. Mm -hmm. Because I think you make a really good point. Is your bookshelf inclusive? Which I prefer to diverse because do you know what I read the other day? Hmm. Someone describing a romance with a fat heroine as own voices. Oh, wow. What a weird way to describe that. And people using fat heroines as a way of being like diverse. And you know what? Not technically wrong, but (laughs) it's like you can't just have like one book with a fat heroine on your shelf and be like diversity, although technically you can. So inclusive, I think, speaks to like bigger, different ability, race, uh, religion, you know, all the shit that like, I think you're so right, like tokenism versus having a truly inclusive bookshelf, right? Do you remember when they, oh my God, this was forever ago, but I can't remember. I can't even remember the name of the website. Someone pointed out that they had no black authors on their all-time greatest authors list or something. So then they added Beverly Johnson. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's, you know, we can like grit our teeth and be like, oh, so embarrassing. But how many of you might be doing the same thing? And I think to get past tokenization, one of the important things to do is to note that you yourself are doing that and try to figure out how you're going to fix it. And I think romance has been doing a lot of tokenization, especially in how we talk about diverse romance, right? Or racially diverse romance. Do you remember back before COVID hit? A thousand and ten years ago. Yeah. And we took stock of the books we had talked about. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about that. Yeah. And especially because we had that conversation about like, what does own voices mean? Mm -hmm. 
and published our percentages on Instagram for feedback and also encouraged other people to hold their own reading lists accountable. And it's really easy to do because you're on Goodreads, right? Uh, And no one did it, but that's okay. No one did it publicly. No one did it publicly, but publicly matters. I agree. There was also a pandemic. A lot was happening. A lot happened, but it's never too late to do something. I think a lot of people think that activism starting with yourself begins with you just thinking about it a lot and just thinking about it a lot doesn't see. Anyways, this was a weird tirade. Hi, I'm Laura Von Holt from the Mermaid Podcast, part of the Frolic Podcast Network. The Mermaid Podcast is, you guessed it, all about mermaids. I cover everything from mermaid legend and history to mermaids in pop culture, movies, and TV. My guests include mermaid experts, mermaid historians, mermaid authors, mermaid charities, mermaid tail makers, and even professional mermaids. Yes, being a mermaid is a real job. So whether you have legs or fins, are a mermaid queen or a mermaid at heart, the Mermaid Podcast has something for you. You can find us at mermaidpodcast.com and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This is set in the 1920s, and I think it's really interesting that there's a real dearth of 20th century romances full stop. And if I ask myself why, um, I would say, well, 1930s sucked, right? Dust Bowl. Hard to find a lot to like about that. 1940s, World War II. It just seemed like the whole world, like when we think about the 1940s, like do we think about anything else? The 1950s is like a weird patriarchal homecoming decade. The 1960s, also very tumultuous and upsetting, right? 1970s, my parents were alive. I don't want to think about my parents having sex. 1980s, same thing, basically. (laughs) With the added bonus of the war on drugs and massive amounts of like, you know. Uh, I would be comfortable with anything post-1990 since that was probably the last time my parents made love in order to create me. But like, yeah, we don't have this real interest in our our more immediate histories. But I'm like, right, because they were like kind of a bummer time. But then I'm like... All history is kind of a bummer time. The Regency was a bummer time. Yeah, totally. Like, it's never been cool. There's never been a time when I would actually get into a time machine and not check, double check and see what the future is like, you know, before going into the past. And so what is it about these more immediate historicities that's unappealing to the romance genre? I don't totally buy that. Like, I know the argument for the Regency period, right? Which is like Jane Austen, right? But like, we also have like Victorian romances were actually more of a thing for a while. Medieval romances were very much a thing in like the 70s and 80s. Also, like, why don't we just do more Georgians? Like, women had so much more actual power and, like, actual, like, movement. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree. I Like, I, I agree I don't really buy the Jane Austen thing, although I do think that, like, she has a lot of staying power in the BBC miniseries in 1995 was a huge part of that, and Georgia at higher in the 70s and her writing. It's just easy to move into a chaste space. <gasps> oh, that's so interesting. It's more easy to move into a chaste space. Yeah. So like wrist kisses are so much, it's just easier to maneuver into like sweet spaces. Like you can eroticize other parts of the body. You can eroticize silences in ways where like the closer we get to our current moment and like the sexual mores of that time of the time that we currently live in, it's just, you have to explain why there isn't sex, especially in romance. And I think like that explanation can feel clunky. And then also the thing about further back historicals is like sex can be transgressive versus like an active, healthy and normal part of the romantic relationship of the couple. And like there was a little bit of that in this book where he refers to it as like she gave him her innocence, which barf. They also say courting, which is like a weird fundamental Christian. I don't think this book was making that reference, but it definitely pulled up a lot of shit for me. Yeah, no, I agree. And like there's this other, it's revealed when they decide to have sex after their three-year absence, he comes back into her life. They have this like moment and he's like, it feels like, and she's like, there hasn't been anyone else. And then he's like super grateful and all this other bullshit. And I was like... 
But like, I don't think that this book, it felt moralizing in the moment, but like neither of the characters freighted it other than that dialogue of like, she gave me her innocence. There's never taking in this book. But there's the, like, whenever she says there hasn't been anyone else before he penetrates her with his penis, it says something like he smiles down. I pictured that part in Lion King where <laughs> he's like fucking pleased. Yeah, exactly. He's pleased. Because he's possessive. But it also goes out of its way to point out that he's pleased. Which felt moralizing about sexuality in a way that I didn't like. But also I think like you don't have to have that conversation in further back historical romances for all the reasons that I've stated, but that also then just assumes a sexual primacy in men and can assume a sexual ignorance in women that like is possessive, but you don't need to call it possession because it was a sexual moray. There was another moment though that I thought because it came first, that moment when he's like very happy that she hasn't had sex with anybody else is like cemented to me as moralizing. I started to get nervous when she goes to that club and there are sex workers and a man offers her money for sex and she is very offended, which I don't think you're offended when someone assumes you have a certain job unless you feel like you're above that job. And she says something along the lines of like, she would never sell her body, which is like, well, it sounds like you've never gone hungry before. That's very nice for you. But also, and I think it's so important because I, I marked that as she says she'd never. But also you don't have to like go hungry to want to do sex work. It makes sense for some people. <laughs> right. There's that. And like the sex worker that she meets even says it like I make more in 15 minutes than like I ever did in three days and like she says this other thing it's like I'd never and it's after that moment that she says to herself I would never right but the thing about it is and like which is so important and something that I like this is like a further treatise that I have where it's like sex work and acting and singing for women for a very long period of history were the exact fucking thing. You are singing for your supper. You are using your body to feed yourself. And it's your dream, babe. But like, also you're selling your body. Like you are literally selling your body at night. When you go to work in a canning factory, you're selling your body at night for a wage. But like it does, it even alludes to this fact that other women look down on her because she's a singer. Yeah. When she goes to the store, people literally turn their backs. And I was like, how are we here at this moment when 50 pages ago you were saying you weren't going to make your money. That's like the discordant of this text where it's like, well, yes, there is this other discordance that I want to draw attention to, which is actually in so many romance novels in my day to day life that drives me up a fucking wall. So I'm going to tell these two pieces of the book out of order. But later in the book, uh, they're dating and she makes him dinner because he paid for the groceries. Well, that to me sounds like an egalitarian arrangement, right? Very progressive. Makes sense also, you know casual. But there's another moment at which he makes her dinner. And the book makes this huge thing about how his grandmother taught him how to cook and set the table. And it reminded me of all of the other times in romance novels, not to even begin in my personal life, when men who have done the least, but because it was feminine, were seen as somehow progressive and transgressive. Whereas like a woman working a job, living alone in New York City in 1920s, a black woman is not seen as that, right? Like she gets no credit for taking up those traits. And oftentimes whenever we talk about like a plucky heroine it's because she's sassy right she talks back whereas like her ways of being and living aren't celebrated in the same way that like I would expect a man who lived alone to know how to cook but instead we're supposed to be like dreamboat and I'm on TikTok a lot and even on TikTok there's like this weird thing of like oh my god a man cleaning house And like, it's just so weird. And this is actually a systemic problem because we see women losing their jobs after they have children or it being justified that they should lose wages because they're spending more time with their kids, whereas they actually find men who have children are getting promotions. And oftentimes it's seen as they are more likable because they are going to a soccer match and everyone's like, oh, he's leaving work early to go to a soccer match. What a good dad. And honestly, this idea of like good dad comes from like being present 
And it's not the same thing. And it's also not the metric at which we measure what a good mother is, right? No, it's not. And the bars are very different. One is on the floor and one is unmeetable. Yeah. And so like another side of this kind of like there's transgression in this book, but that it's really underpinned by this traditional ideas of masculinity and femininity and acceptability and propriety. I think propriety is something that really sneaks up in this book. I think sneaks up is exactly right. And like the way in which the characters are interacting with propriety, because she gives him a key to her place and she does it so he uses the back door so that people don't know that he's coming up to see her. And it's like, well, her best friend slash sister slash boss slash landlord, jack of all relationships, Liz, (laughs) is like, she doesn't care. She's a widow who is like having some sort of flirtatious relationship with the bootlegger. Like the no one in the band cares. So then like, who is this performance for? Even when he's approached by the white police officers, he's frank about it. He was like, I was up in my lady friend's apartment. Yeah, he literally says that. And the police don't say anything about that. Right. And so it really became a question of like, who is this performance for? And then is it, is it for me, the reader? Because it doesn't seem to be for any of the other characters. And it doesn't seem to really be for them. Although it does then create the space where she's like, no, you can come up the front door at the close to the end of the book. And I guess like if it's for that tension, then OK, like they're not a secret anymore. And I guess like that sort of like outness is like that sort of recognition, that public recognition, that less furtiveness is good. That felt like a barrier in posed by the characters for somebody that wasn't in their orbit, which is like propriety. I think it's also like, I think this book is conscientiously trying to transgress our historical expectations. And so to do that, it has to set historical expectations. And there's this idea that like in oldie times, people did not fuck and nobody knew about fucking. And we invented eating ass in the last 10 years. Congratulations, everybody. We did it. Not that there's an ass eating scene in this book. Don't expect that. I wish. But there's also this moment when I assumed that he was going to propose to her and instead he gives her a statue and the book had said I feel like I was set up to believe it was a proposal because it talked about I got you a gift in San Francisco because I never stopped thinking about you and then it was like he got the box and it's not until he brings the box to her that the box is then described as elongated right and it felt like the book was purposefully transgressing our assumptions about what past romantic entanglements were like. And so this like underpinning of propriety, whenever it doesn't get like purposefully shrugged, you can really see the underlying ethos, like the unconscious stuff, the stuff that doesn't go poked at. And sometimes when like nothing gets poked, it's easy to have plausible deniability. (laughs) But this book pokes some things, I think, and doesn't poke others, like gender roles. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Do you want to talk about the masculine, feminine gender roles? I think I did. (laughs) I mean, I think that's true. And I think like that was like when you were describing the box scene with the statue. I also had that moment where it's like, oh, shit, he's like going to propose. But they've like literally just spent two nights together and like she still doesn't fully trust him. Like they haven't had a conversation about like why he left. I'm like, this would be a huge mistake. And instead, it's this gorgeous bust of two clearly black individuals in an amorous embrace and she's just so enamored of it because she loves art so like this is another way of like the I see you happening which was like really really nice I like actually super duper appreciated that I I love the statue I did too I just like that was a really good moment I love the transgressions when the transgressions happen Mm -hmm. but it's also I love that the book is to speak about transgression I love that the book is set in the 1920s in the author's note, she talks about picking it. And I was like, yeah, of course. Like, I can kind of pinpoint why people would be uncomfortable writing in almost any other historical era but the 1920s. And I also love that kind of the base of the historical movement that she's rooting our characters in is one of creation. Because I think oftentimes our, like, framing of history comes around destruction, right? Like, 
which war are we pre-war are we post-war are we cold war are we civil you know like that's how we understand the world and to like set the harlem renaissance as your central mover wonderful or the renaissance at all why don't we have more renaissance romances seriously as soon as you said that i was like yeah the renaissance (laughs) but like one of the other things that i think is really special and i i'm so glad that you said creation because there's this one other moment so like cards on the table like as a second chance this did not tick my box (laughs) because she welcomes him back real fast he does not do enough of a mia culpa and it's like it's resolved fairly easily and quickly and i was like well what's the point of the drama of a second chance romance if you're not gonna have the melodrama okay but there is this one moment where he's written this song and he's like i've had it kicking around in my head yes and he says like i've finally been able to put it to paper and he gives it to her and like they're gonna go get this record and then she's looking at it and she has this internality where she says i wanted to change some lines but i didn't know how he would react there's a beat in the text where she's like oh i don't know if i'm gonna ask and i was like oh babe please ask it please ask it and then she goes hey do you mind if i change some lines and he immediately like there's no pause he goes of course this is our song you have as much ownership as i do and i thought that was such a nice thing where it's like I understood her hesitation both because of her character but also because of the time period and everything that's freighted with it and that the fact that the book didn't pause for her to like register a reaction for him to have a reaction and that he just immediately jumped into the dialogue of like of course it's ours I was like ugh. and it's it's this like while it may not work as a second chance I've never had a second chance really work out for me so (laughs) I can't tell the difference but it works really well as a workplace showbiz romance. Yeah, it does. Because, and it's wonderful to me that this book and that single line of dialogue, right? Well, the build, the tension building up to it, but then the hero single line of dialogue makes clear that he sees her as a whole person, not just as a woman. The fact that he's not intimidated by that. The fact that he's not possessive of his creativity with her, that he trusts her in that way and understands her as this intellectual not just sexual being and a creative being in a you know ethereal way was just so satisfying it reminds me of Richard Burton's diaries whenever he and Elizabeth Taylor were working on something together it was like reading a romance novel it wasn't so much when they were just like hanging out on a yacht things didn't go so well for them but I think making something together that isn't a baby is an underutilized (laughs) avenue in romance and I think this book encapsulated it so well and not just that like soaring feeling of falling in love but soaring feeling of making something and having it go well and realizing that it's going well in the moment yes very good very very good I totally agree like I didn't know that I wanted more workplace creation romances but like their song coupledom made me immediately think of this episode of Franny Fisher uh, with a trumpetist and a blues singer and other kinds of creative partnerships like I thought of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and like even like bad ones like fucking Kenneth Branagh and like Emma Thompson and it's like when it works it works and when it doesn't it doesn't but like when it works it's like what is that like alchemical like I see you as performing performer and muse and partner and like the thing that we create is bigger than us which is like exactly the creation of something other than baby and how satisfying yeah and I think taking procreation in the traditional sense out of it is a great way to button up a story because I did feel like the story was buttoned up after that. I I felt like the relationship was sealed. And I think a lot of times people bring a baby into it because they want the relationship to feel sealed, right? And I think that was just so good. So good. So good. Sexiest part? Sexiest part. So I went on that whole thing about like how it's not so great when men know how to cook, they should know how to cook. Like it drives me insane that like the things that are associated with womanhood are all of these like basic functions of living and like they also live in the same house as women, these men folk oftentimes, and then they just like forget that they have. Anyways, so he makes her dinner and they have dinner together. And I was feeling really like. 
obviously about it. So the first thing I highlighted in this chapter was with his height, good looks, nice build and wonderful voice. He'd be a great catch for any woman. And my note was like, how is this good? How is any of this good? Like he looks good, but that doesn't make him a catch. Obviously, as women, having a catch is like a very complex thing, right? And I was thinking about like the fantasy of a world in which all you had to do is objectify a man in the same way that like women have to be these like erotic feeling making machines at all times, right? Uh, So then my rage balloon was set up to be popped. It was overblown. And she says, will you cook for me again every Sunday? And he says, I'll cook for you every day of the week and do any other thing you want, baby. He trailed kisses down her neck. I don't know what it is about that line. Probably the idea of being taken care of and having someone who states explicitly that they're willing to take care of you. I happen to personally love cooking, but if it was an expectation of me, I would hate it. And like having someone be willing to take that on. And also it's just like a very smooth thing to say. And I think maybe we've read a lot of goofy cinnamon roll heroes lately, awkward, kind of mincing. And so I think I was also very much in the mood for a smooth operator, which Miles very much is. Miles is a smooth operator. He is a smooth operator. This is also a book that refers to sex as making love, which I love. And it's actually, you know, I mean this as a compliment. This is not a fade to black book, but if these sex scenes were in a Debbie Maycomer, I wouldn't be like startled. Like they are very much like the tender vanilla gets a bad rap, but you know, vanilla in the best sense, like a rich vanilla bean sex scene. Yeah. Full-bodied, fully expressed. I also agree, like I have in my notes, I'm like, there's nothing like, pizzazz is a wrong word. I don't know. I think pizzazz might be it. Yeah, there's like, that doesn't have a ton of pizzazz, but that doesn't mean that I found these sex scenes lacking. There's no gimmick to them. Right. Yeah, there's no gimmick. That's exactly right. And by gimmicks, I mean all sorts of things. Anal sex sometimes reads like a gimmick in romance novels. Anal oral sex reads like a gimmick sometimes. I mean, even like having sex outside can read as a gimmick if it's not done correctly. And like, you're right, there were no gimmicks here. But that wasn't to say that they weren't you know, lovely and full-bodied. What was your sexiest part? I, so obviously my sexiest part was the, hey babe, of course we'll change the song however you want. (laughs) Because I love talking. And I was very disappointed that we didn't have more of a Mia Culpa for this second chance romance because he does really leave her in the lurch. Like she's never lived anywhere besides Magnolia, Arkansas. And like what was so interesting and fascinating to me about Lee is that she takes her heartbroken self and puts herself on the train to New York and she like fucking makes it happen and like I loved that which is why I got real like tea cake vibes from him tea cake is a smooth operator he also like represents this like leave taking opportunity and so to have like a tea cake sort of resurrected and saved by being a good person who does actually love the main character was interesting to me but the sexiest part other than this talking stuff was when he starts kissing her for the first time right before their uh, penetrative sex scene and she's just in her slip and he starts kissing on her nipples and it's like their body remember each other you love that bodies remembering each other I do I love that shit I also just like loved her like drop wasted dress like drop to the floor like the clothes in this like I know I did a lot of ho humming about the historical stuff being too much but I really did love the clothes yeah I liked that yeah so I liked him taking her out of her clothes yeah, and I, you know, even like the passionate embraces, the moments of kissing, they they were all very evocative to me of like 1930s movies about the 1920s and like the lines he would say, those really smooth lines. And it did make me think about how we remember time periods in kind of the gauzy caress of what the film looked like at the time. Like I always picture the 70s as this kind of brown ochre, avocado green. But of course, like we have all of those colors now. It's just I see them in person right and I don't see them in this light and so when I picture the 1920s it's hard for me to picture like any kind of particular color right besides the idealized cartoony things that came out of like adaptations of the great Gatsby (laughs) but it is like there's something also so sensual about thinking of things in in black and white pictures why don't we have more books from this era (laughs) 
No, I, t- I totally agree. This just made me want to read a lot of like 1920s, a lot of Harlem Renaissance. Like I just also like was like, just want to look at these people, like especially the mustaches. Like this book paid a lot of attention to men's facial hair. Come on. Yeah, absolutely. And I was like, this is great. This is absolutely fabulous. Like talk to me more. I wasn't afraid to celebrate a pencil mustache, I felt. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, ooh, thank you for bringing that to my attention. And thank you for not being like weird about it like there's also this thing of like how like men have like no body hair in historicals or they don't have like historically accurate facial hair she loved his ivory smooth like whatever piano key body I don't know and it's like well that doesn't actually make sense because that wouldn't have been a thing you know especially problematic when it comes to a woman's pubis being approached that way but I really like that the historical details were taken seriously and as a given when they weren't like actual historical anecdotes, like the details between the couple, like the camisole and the silk slips and the hair clips and the mustache, you know, or the suits. What was your weirdest part? Percival. Percival. Percival, our erstwhile uh, intended from Arkansas, the preacher who was just villainous. Yes. Villainous in every way. Speaking of mustaches, a real snidely whiplash character. Yes, real snidely. Literally at the end with like. Carrying her off to a train. Yeah. At knife point. After sending two goons to murder Miles Cooper. He stole her statue and sold it. I know. Utterly irredeemable. Absolutely. And it also didn't make sense to me that her parents would be so taken in by this character. But I didn't know enough about them to, like, figure that out either way. It just, like, I don't feel like we needed him. Like, there was enough standing in their way. Yeah. Belinda would have been enough. (laughs) Perfect segue to my weirdest part. Belinda. Another utterly irredeemable villain. And once again, like a woman who is characterized by her villainy because of her desire for the hero. And okay, sure. Percival is pretty much, first of all, you don't need both of them. Okay. We don't need two flat characters. It's not like every hero and every heroine needs their own foil. I understand the instinct, but I cannot approve it. And I also just like, it feels especially grievous to me when it's a woman. And I think it's because I've read a lot of romance novels where there wasn't even a male counterpart villain, right? It's just the woman who wants to bone the hero. But Belinda's endgame isn't clear to me. Okay, so she's going to lie and tell our heroine, Lee, that Miles has left her, has just left town. What's she going to do when he comes back? She doesn't know that Lee's going to Paris yet, right? How would she have known that? What's the plan? I don't think she had a plan other than to hurt Lee. But like then Miles would have come back. So like not a very well thought out plan. The other part of it is it's like Belinda has been hounding. And I do mean hounding Miles for the entirety of the book. Why the fuck would he leave his most precious note? My grandma's dying. I need to go to Louisiana and leave it with this person that he knows has been like all the fuck up in his space, like trying to get a date. Why didn't he just shove it under her apartment door? Or give it to Liz or one of the band. Liz wasn't there, but or anybody else, like shove it under her door. Any number of things. Why leave it with a known quantity who is like not very trustworthy? But then he also like in the last minute, he comes back and discovers what's happened and then he learns that Lee's on a boat to Paris and she's gonna leave in an hour and a half and he's like I'm gonna go pay my rent and then get my woman and it's like what? I actually loved that he because we meet his landlady once because he's like why? Why do you love that? He could have paid his rent afterwards, right? Oh, totally. Because the landlady also said, like, don't worry, I'll hold it for you. Because he already paid her two weeks in advance when he went to Louisiana to say goodbye to his dying grandmother. So, like, we already know that, like, landlady is on board for Miles Cooper. And so, like, the fact that he went back to visit this lady, pay her in advance. Also, how much fucking money does he have? Do you know what like- else he could have done? He could have just given the cash to Liz and been like, pay my landlady. And I would have been like, that's great. He's thinking of his landlady right now because she's doing him a solid and he might end up in Paris. Like that would have made sense. But I was like, I was so like, like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it doesn't make any sense as far as time goes. No, 
New York is a small island, but it's a big place. It's very trafficy. Oh, yeah. Anyways, romance or nomance for you, Isabel? Would you uh, recommend this book to people? I want to say yes, but I'm going to say no. Okay. I think I would recommend this series. Like, I looked at a couple of others, including the one that directly comes after this. Like, I enjoyed a lot about this. I would recommend this to some folks. Yeah. But I wouldn't universally recommend it, especially to people who I think like are, you know, deep in the genre. I might recommend the project at large, but like as like a standalone romance, this is a hard one for me. I would say it's a romance. I would recommend it because I think it fulfills a niche in this depiction of this particular historical era. And I think it shows how it can be done well. I also think like it also shows how big scary, also just intimidating politically historical issues can be depicted in a way that is nuanced and not intrusive to the love story. I also would call it a romance because it reminded me when I was reading it of a potato chip book like Angie and the Ghostbuster. We can just sit down and read this in an afternoon and you just power through it, you know? But one of my favorite things about it is like the scenes of racialized anxiety are depicted, but they're not depicted in this like Baroque violent way, but they're not undermined because of it, right? They're not underestimated in their importance and their fearfulness. And I think it's a great way of demonstrating how something as pervasive to white readers, how something as pervasive as racial anxiety and fear is not a hindrance to a happily ever after and does not intrude on good feelings in the love story itself between our characters or for the reader. There are a lot of people who could stand to learn that. Absolutely. Yeah, that like history doesn't have to be about black exploitation or pain in the way that it often is in our media. That's actually really helpful for me to think about it as a category rather than a standalone. That's helpful for me. So yeah, in that sense, yes. It's a whoa. It's hard because we read like these self-published novels, right? And it's usually like an exercise in like absolute creativity and like something that would never get published. And this feels like a really quiet book for that area for us to enjoy. But it's it's still like zesty. (laughs) Yeah, I think it sings its pleasures. And very much like the blues, it is intoxicating in its own way. Any final thoughts, Isabel? Think about your bookshelf and make sure that you are doing the work and not just like leaving it in your brain. Yeah, don't just leave it in your brain. I think that's important. Don't just leave it in your brain. And I think if you're a romance writer, I would like to personally request more books from the 20th century. I love historicals. I love historical details. And I think there's a whole, I don't know, what, 300 years? How long have we been... (laughs) You can get a lot of details out of more recent history as well. Oh, for sure. Uh, Maybe that's the problem. But I I would encourage people to explore more recent historical times in their books because this was so fun in that way. With that. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah. <laughs>